0: Without debate, it's the most wonderful time of the year, and, and for so many reasons. You know, one reason why is because Christmas time includes the, the classic Christmas songs that fill our minds with wonderful memories of Christmas past. You know, I, I, every time I hear certain Christmas songs, it just brings to mind so many Christmas memories from when I was a child. And so, in that sense, Christmas is wonderful. Christmas time is also wonderful because of the beautiful decorations that make the world seem much more magical than than you know the rest of the year. And you know, Brenda and I, uh, after a dinner date, uh, we went driving around some neighborhoods just looking at Christmas lights. And you know these uh, you know these neighborhoods are, are nice you know to begin with, but then you know it's just more magical to see them all lit up with the beautiful Christmas lights. Christmas time is a wonderful time of year. It's also a wonderful time of year because it gives us the opportunity to spend meaningful time with family and friends that we love. And, and while there are many people that I have no doubt we're looking forward to spending time with as, you know, we engage in these Christmas time celebrations, I also realize that there are usually a few people that, well, we're hoping to avoid. Yeah, there, there are those relatives <laughs> that were just like, Uh, I hope they don't show up, you know? Like, like, I'm sure we all have that drunk uncle who, you know, loves to just kind of crash the Christmas parties or that sibling who ruins every celebration with endless complaints about everything they're going through. And then there's the angry grandparent who clearly has a chip on their shoulder or the nephew who just got out of jail again. I'm sure we all have those relatives that we're hoping won't ruin our Christmas celebration. And if you're thinking, I don't, I I don't have that relative. Then you are that relative probably. (laughs) But seriously, if this sounds like your Christmas concern, then I want to take a moment to remind you that Christmas is still the most wonderful time of year. And yeah, even when we find ourselves surrounded by relatives that we really don't want to be around. Christmas is still the most wonderful time of year, and the reason why is because it's a time that reminds us about the wonderful transformation that occurs in the lives of those who truly trust in Jesus Christ. And with that, we find ourselves in the middle of a special series that I've titled The Christ Centered Christmas. While we spent our time last week considering the wise investment of the wise men who searched for our Savior, well, we're going to spend our time today considering the story of the shepherds whose lives were completely transformed on the night when Jesus was born. And as we consider the way that the birth of the baby Jesus transformed the lives of those surly shepherds, it's my hope that we'll all begin to realize that a Christ-centered Christmas can still transform the lives of those who are even living in sin today. That's right. A Christ-centered Christmas can actually transform the lives of those relatives that you'd rather not be around. And that's really good news. Now with this as the focus, if you would, let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 2. I'd like to, uh, I'd like you to turn to the second chapter of Luke's gospel account because it's here in Luke 2 where we find Luke recounting this incredible story of the night when a group of shepherds there in uh, the region of Bethlehem, they received a supernatural invitation to come and meet the baby Jesus. And as we dig into our text today, we're going to discover that the story of the shepherds will help us to see that a Christ-centered Christmas can actually transform our greatest fears into joy. Secondly, we'll see that the story of the shepherds, well, it teaches us about the way that a Christ-centered Christmas can transform outcasts into Ambassadors. And then finally, we'll see that the story of the shepherds can teach us how a Christ-centered Christmas transforms sinners into worshipers. Well, with this as the outline, let's begin to consider the story of these shepherds. And so if you would look with me here at Luke chapter 2, I want to focus your attention there at verse 8, because here we learn that there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. I want to stop right here because Luke has already presented us with a great deal of information which could easily be overlooked. You see, when Luke tells us that there were these shepherds who were out living in the fields, he was actually referring to a group of men who were quite possibly the outcasts of this region. That's right, the, the shepherds there in Israel during the first century were considered by others to be men of extremely low social status. And, and they were low class men uh, who you know were probably uh, treated as outcasts. And, and this was a common consensus and for several reasons. You see, in order to understand the reason for their bad reputation, well, it'll help you to know that the average shepherd there in the first century was employed by some wealthy farmer who needed help "...with their flocks and herds." Being that these hirelings were typically poor to begin with, they oftentimes were accused of stealing wool and milk from the flocks that they watched. And not to say that they were actually stealing it, but they were often accused of it. They were seen as men who would take what wasn't theirs. These men were also known to trespass by taking their flocks to graze on another person's land without permission." and so they were kind of seen as as men who didn't really obey the laws not only that but these men were constantly dealing with unclean animals both living and dead And according to the law, you know, if you've touched an unclean animal, you're ceremonially unclean. And so, therefore, these shepherds were rarely able to go and observe ceremonial customs there at the temple in Jerusalem. And And in light of all these things, you know, it's possible, if not even probable, that these shepherds that we find here in Luke's account were seen as social outcasts who had, you know, bad reputations that preceded them. That being the case, you know... These probably would have been the last men that Mary and Joseph invited for this first Christmas celebration. It's like, who do you want to put on the list of people to come over and see the baby Jesus? Well, the shepherds would probably be at the end of the list. And yet in the economy of God, they were at the top of the list. They were at the top of the list. The Lord saw fit to invite these outcasts to come and meet the one who was born, Christ the Lord. And with this as the focus, let's continue to consider our text today. If you would look with me again here at Luke chapter two, we'll begin reading at verse eight. Here again, we learn that there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night and behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were greatly afraid They were greatly afraid. Luke tells us how these shepherds suddenly found themselves face to face with this incredible angel. And and as as a result, the hearts of these men were filled with great fear. Now listen, the the shepherds of Israel weren't weak men. They weren't beta males. They weren't scaredy cats. These were manly men who were hired to defend their flocks and herds against all manner of predators, including wolves, wolves. And panthers, hyenas, and jackals, bears, and lions, and yeah, leftists. That being the case, these guys weren't easily frightened. And yet, here they were, filled with great fear. Not just a little fear, they were filled with great, they were greatly afraid. As a matter of fact, notice again in verse 9 where Luke tells us that the, Lord, uh, the angel of the Lord stood before them, the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Now as we consider this great amount of fear... You know, I can't help but to consider the common depictions of angels which are found in our 21st century Christian bookstores. You know, if you go down to the Christian bookstore and you're looking for like a tchotchke or a painting or something like that, you know, you always find like angels depicted as little chubby babies with wings or or, or beautiful women, you know, who have long flowing gowns as if they're off to some sort of, you know, you know beauty competition or something like that. And, you know, if angels actually look like that, then... Why would these guys fear that? Why would why would burly shepherds fear a chubby baby with wings? Why would these burly men fear, you know, some beautiful woman dressed up in an evening gown, you know? Doesn't make any sense. In order to understand the fear that filled the hearts of these seasoned shepherds, we should consider it one description of cherubs that the prophet Ezekiel presented. And so with this has to focus, hold your place here in the Gospel of Luke and turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 1. As you're making your way to the first chapter of, of Ezekiel, I just want to spend a second pointing out that the typical depictions of angels that we find on, on many Christmas cards they aren't biblically accurate. Not even close. It's like they, they made zero attempt to try to present an angel uh, from what the Bible says, right? And to prove my point, let's consider Ezekiel's description, which is found here in Ezekiel chapter 1. Look with me there, beginning at verse 4. Here the prophet of God declares, Then I looked, and behold, a whirlwind was coming out of the north, a great cloud with raging fire engulfing itself, and brightness was all around it, and radiating out of its midst like the color of amber out of the midst of the fire. Also from within it came the likeness of four living creatures, and this was their appearance. They had the likeness of a man. Each one had four faces." And each one had four wings. Their legs were straight, and the soles of their feet were like the soles of calves' feet. They sparkled like the color of burnished bronze. The hands of a man were under their wings on, the, on their four sides, and each of the four had faces and wings. Their wings touched one another. The creatures did not turn when they went, but each one went straight forward, As for the likeness of their faces, each had the face of a man. Each of the four had the face of a lion on the right side. Each of the four had the face of an ox on the left side. And each of the four had the face of an eagle. Thus were their faces. Their wings stretched upward. Two wings of each one touched one another and two covered their bodies. Here in these verses, we learn that these angels known as cherubs... They didn't look like little chubby babies with wings. Uh, They didn't look like beautiful ladies in formal gowns. No, instead the angels here have the likeness of men and yet there's so much more to them than that. They've got these four faces. uh, They've got these four wings. It's just incredible. And as we consider these interesting angels, you know, it should really come as no surprise that those shepherds who were there in the field on the the night of Jesus' birth, uh, they were filled with great fear as they found themselves standing face to face with this awesome angel. Now, remember, these guys, you know, were shepherds, and so therefore, you know, they, the chances are they were, they were living lives that were, really weren't in line with the moral code of the Mosaic law. And it's my guess that these guys, you know, were filled with fear because, I mean, look at these angels, right? I mean, they're incredible to behold. And yet at the same time, as they stood in the presence of the holy angels, I'm guessing that they could clearly see how sinful they actually were. Standing in the presence of God's holy angels, they probably were able to instantly understand how much they deserved the righteous wrath of a holy God. And so they probably thought that the appearance of this angel was going to precede the judgment of God, which they deserved. Thankfully, their fear instantly turned to joy as the angel announced the birth of our Savior. And with this as the focus, let's turn back to Luke chapter 2. I want to continue to consider the announcement of this angel. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 10, Luke writes, Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Now, uh, here in these verses, Luke describes the, uh, this angelic being uh, as, as a heavenly herald who, was co- who had come to comfort the cowering shepherds. And, and, and while they probably thought that God's judgment was now upon them, uh, the angel assured them that his mission was uh, one of joyful news and not judgmental wrath. He tells them to to not be afraid, but rather that his message is one of joy. He was telling these sinful shepherds that they could exchange the fear of judgment for the joy of Jesus. That word joy, which is found there in verse 10. Well, it's the same Greek word that Matthew used when he described the joyful gladness of the wise men. When the wise men showed up and saw the baby Jesus, they were filled with joy. And the angels were saying, hey, this is the same joy that you can have because of Jesus. The baby Jesus was sent to bring joy to the wise men and to the sinful shepherds. And, and not only that, but it's good news for us as well. This angelic announcer who showed up there in that shepherd's field announce this source of joy, which is found in our Savior, Jesus. And and, and listen, he, he, he helps us to understand that this joy is based on the fact that our Savior is Christ the Lord. As a matter of fact, notice again in verse 10, here again the angel says, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people, for there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now, I want to stop right here and consider this title, uh, Christ the Lord. Uh, The word Christ actually comes from the Greek word Christos, and it's a title which simply means anointed one. So this angel is is referring to this baby, uh, the baby Jesus, as the anointed one of God, which is to say that the baby Jesus is the promised Messiah. And, And we know that the Messiah is the Savior of repentant sinners. And so there's great joy in this. The second part of the title that the angel used to describe the baby Jesus was the word Lord, uh, which is translated from the Greek Kyrios. This word Kyrios was a title that was given to a sovereign ruler or a master. What this means is that the angel was not only referring to the baby Jesus as the anointed Messiah, but also as the master of mankind. Now think about, about this for a moment, because here we have this powerful, magnificent, glorious angel who caused the shepherds to cower in fear, and this angel says, no, 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 that's the master. That's the Messiah. This incredible angel is submitting himself to the authority of the baby Jesus by recognizing that Jesus is the almighty master and Messiah, and in this, there is great joy. As we consider the meaning of this title, Christ the Lord, we discover that the angel was announcing the birth, consider that for a moment, the birth of the Master and Messiah who was sent to save sinners from the wrath of Almighty God. We're talking about the human incarnation of the infinite Logos. And it's through his sinless sacrifice that the fear of judgment can be replaced with the joy of salvation. You see, our Messiah and our Master was sent to be born to die. Think about that for a moment. Our Messiah and our Master was sent to take on human frailty born of a virgin for the sole purpose of dying so that we could be saved. And now those who will repent and trust in him can be forgiven. And it's for this reason that the holy angel tells these sinful shepherds, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. It's a message that has been extended to all people that salvation is found in Christ the Lord. In light of this story, I encourage you to make sure that your Christmas celebration is centered around Christ because, listen, the Christ-centered Christmas is a celebration that's actually able to transform lives. And we see that in the story of the shepherds. Their lives were transformed on that night because this was a Christ-centered Christmas. And a Christ-centered Christmas here in our day and age is still able to transform lives by taking our greatest fears and transforming them into the joy of Jesus. And, and I have no doubt that we're all afraid of something. We're all afraid of something here today. It might be the economy. It, it, it might be the relatives that you don't want to see. It might be that this Bible study might go too long and you're going to get hungry. You know the, We're all afraid of something. And yet those who will spend time considering the real reason for this season will begin to remember that the Lord is able to transform every fear into joy. With that being the case, we can rejoice in knowing that a Christ-centered Christmas transforms fear into joy. And not only that, but a Christ-centered Christmas can also turn outcasts into ambassadors and with this as the focus let's continue to consider the transformation of the shepherds found here in Luke chapter 2 if you would look with me there we'll back up and begin reading once again at verse 10 here the angel declares do not be afraid for behold I bring you good tidings of great joy which will be to all people for there is born to you this day in the city of David a savior who is Christ the Lord and this will be the sign to you you will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger And here in these verses, we find this magnificent messenger helping these sinful shepherds to search for the true source of joy. And they gave them, you know, some way to to, to find the baby Jesus. The angel revealed that the Savior would be a newborn child, so they know they're looking for a baby. Uh, They also know that the baby is going to be found in the city of David, which of course is Bethlehem. And then he directs them to search for a blanket-bound baby, which wouldn't have been unusual except for the fact that this specific baby was lying in a manger, No doubt there were several babies in the city of Bethlehem wrapped in swaddling clothes. But we can be certain that there was only one baby that night lying in a manger. And to understand why this would have been so significant, I want to consider this sign in the context of this chapter. So let's back up here in Luke chapter 2. I want to focus your attention back at verse 1. Here Luke tells us that it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Here we learn that this, you know, this, this Roman Caesar forced every Israelite to go back to the, to, to their hometowns for the purpose of a national census. And this is exactly what put Mary in Bethlehem for the birth of the baby Jesus, just as the prophecies revealed. And in this way, we can see how God can use secular politicians to accomplish his will. Amen. No, you don't like that. I guarantee he can. After arriving in Bethlehem, Mary was on the verge of giving birth, and, and, and probably because they, you know, their travel time took longer than most. I don't know how many times she stopped to use the restroom, but it was probably a lot. <laughs> but after arriving in Joseph's hometown of Bethlehem, you know, all the best rooms at the Holiday Inn were taken. So rather than checking into a nice room there at the local inn, they were given a spot in the stable, which was probably a cave. And it was there in that cave where Mary gave birth to the promised Messiah. And, and, you know, most caves in that day and age didn't come with, you know, a, a nice nursery. But there was a food trough, also known as a manger. Yeah, the Greek word that's, Translated manger, typically referred to a stone trough found in a stable or a stall used for feeding animals. And so of all the newborn babies wrapped in a blanket that night, there was only one of them lying in an animal food trough. And that's the way God the Father chose to send his only begotten son into the world. The father wrapped his son in human frailty and then set this child apart from every other baby by placing the baby Jesus in an animal food trough. It's incredible to consider. Well it's true that these sinful shepherds were being invited to search for a baby lying in an animal food trough, you know it's it's also true that they were about to become the first human heralds of Christ Jesus. Yeah, these surly men who were seen as the worst of the worst sinners in all of Israel were about to become the first ambassadors from heaven. They were about to become the first human ambassadors representing God's heavenly kingdom. And to explain what I mean, let's continue making our way here through Luke's account. And if you would look with me there at verse 13 here, Luke writes, and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, good will toward men. Now uh, here in these verses, Luke tells us how this story instantly became a musical and, 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 it's, and it's there in the field where this angelic choir all of a sudden appears and they're singing this incredible song and the song is about the mission and the ministry of our Messiah And as we consider the lyrical content of this spiritual stanza, it seems obvious to me that these angels were intending to help the shepherds to understand that God's glory, which extends to the highest of heavens, has now descended to the earth so that repentant sinners can enjoy peace with him according to the good pleasure of his will. And as we consider the meaning of this song, you know, I'm guessing that these unclean men were amazed to hear that they could enjoy peace with God through the glory of his gracious will, which is now available to every person through the promised Messiah who was lying in that animal food trough. And it was with the faith of a child that these surly shepherds went to go find the one who was sent to bring peace to mankind. And they did this as they went to find the baby Jesus. And as they found the baby Jesus, the lives of these outcasts were transformed as they became the ambassadors of Christ Jesus. In order to prove my point, let's pick up our study of Luke chapter 2. Look with me there at verse 15. Here Luke writes, So it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Here we learn that these social outcasts were not only invited to meet the one who was born king of the Jews, but we also see that these men had the faith to believe that they ought to go and see this thing that the Lord had made known to to them, and so they walked by faith. They they searched for our Savior, and I should point out that these guys didn't dilly-dally around. No one said, Luke tells us there in verse 16 that they came with haste. They didn't say, oh, we'll go check it out tomorrow. No, they made haste. They wasted no time searching for Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. And they didn't rest until they found themselves standing at the feet of our Savior. Then, once they saw the empirical evidence of the angel's announcement, they then went out and acted as the Lord's ambassadors. Matter of fact, look with me again here at Luke chapter 2. I want to draw your attention to verse 17. Here Luke writes now, When they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Here in these verses, Luke tells us about the way that the shepherds not only showed up, to, to see our Savior Jesus, but, but once they had seen him, they didn't just sit around drinking eggnog and eating Christmas cookies. No, instead, they followed the example set to them by the angel. You see, the angel came from heaven and announced this good news, and they followed in, the, in, in this example by going out and, and encouraging everyone else to come and see. They went out and told everyone they could about the angelic visitation and the proof that the promised Messiah had actually been born there in Bethlehem. And and not only do we learn how the birth of the baby Jesus turned these social outcasts into holy ambassadors, but we also learn that their message then ended up causing quite a stir there in the land of Israel. As a matter of fact, look with me again there, verse, verse 18. Here again, Luke tells us that all those who heard it marveled they marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. In other words, the people who heard their testimony were amazed and they were astonished. They were filled with a sense of wonder. You know, they, they were filled with this sense of wonder as they considered the testimony of those shepherds. In, in this way, we can see how a Christ-centered Christmas fills people with a sense of wonder as the story of Jesus is shared They were also filled with a sense of wonder as they, you know, considered the transformed lives of these shepherds. Think about it for a moment. These guys were shepherds in this area. No doubt they had been into town before. No doubt that, you know, every time they came into town, all the shop owners were like, here we go, guard your stuff. Yeah, their reputations probably preceded them. And and chances are, you know, they would come in town and and cause some disruptions from time to time. Now imagine these guys showing up and talking about the Messiah, sharing the story of our Savior, encouraging people to come and meet the baby Jesus. Jesus. No doubt the life, the lives of these men had been transformed and the people in Bethlehem who knew these men were shocked and filled with a sense of wonder as they saw the shepherds encouraging people to come out and meet the Messiah. And as we consider the way that they dropped everything in order to spread the good news about the baby Jesus, there should be no doubt in our minds that the lives of these shepherds were transformed and they would never be the same again. Now, in order to understand how this applies to our lives, we should consider something that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. And so hold your place here in the gospel of Luke and let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter one. As you make your way to the first chapter of 1 Corinthians, I just want to take a moment to point out that the story of the shepherds helps us to see that the Lord doesn't really need religious rulers or famous celebrities or you know, wealthy individuals to, to, to herald his, his information, Right? The Lord doesn't need you know someone you know who's already well known in the eyes of the people, you know, in in, in some sort of you know uh, uh, a necessary step in getting the, the the word out, so to speak, right? And, and it's sad to say that the the modern church here today. Uh, is so quick to latch on to any celebrity who begins to, to even just talk a little bit about Jesus. You know? And Case in point, Kanye West. You know? it, it wasn't too long ago when Kanye started talking about Jesus and the church is like, Kanye's a Christian! He's a Christian, he, let's, let's, let's promote him. And it, well, How's that working out for us now? Got to be praying for Kanye because it seems like he's lost his mind a little bit there. And, you know, in all my years of being a Christian, I've seen it happen time and time again. You know, a celebrity starts talking a little bit about Jesus and the church is like, you're yeah, a Christian. Yay. Like, like, like we need Christianity to be popular. And, and so any celebrity that comes along and, and talks just a little bit about Jesus, like, well, they're on our side now. And now Christianity is finally popular. No, no, no. The legitimate conversions just place those people in the crazy Christian camp and the rest who didn't really have a conversion, but they're talking about some new age Jesus or something, well, they just kind of tarnish the the name of Christ. We need to stop looking for celebrities to make Christianity popular. It's never going to happen. It won't, nor is it God's plan. The truth of the matter is that The Lord seems to have a different idea. He typically takes the dregs of society, the social outcasts, and transforms them and says, see what I can do? I say it often. Yeah, the Lord scraped the bottom of the barrel when he found me. To prove my point, let's consider what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Look with me there, beginning at verse 20. Here Paul declares, where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign. And Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block, and to the Greeks, foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh. Not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are that no flesh should glory in his presence. Here in these verses, we find Paul helping us to understand that the Lord loves to take social outcasts, you know, like those shepherds, transform their lives so that they can become the holy ambassadors of heaven. So that when people see the transformed lives of foolish, baseless people, there's a sense of wonder in knowing that they didn't fix themselves. We can tend to think that God can't accomplish great th- things through simple people like us or foolish people like us, and yet the transformation of the shepherd certainly proves otherwise. The Lord took those surly shepherds and transformed them and turned them into the first human ambassadors for Christ Jesus. Jesus. And he's still doing this today. He, he took me out of the pulpit and raised me up to become a pastor. He took me out of the, uh, out of the mosh pit, I say, and, and put me in the pulpit. He takes the foolish things of this world, and you might be looking at that and saying, well, not many wise. And so I'm part of the not many, you know, I'm kind of wise. You know, not many mighty, you know, Thankfully, there's a few of us, right? God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And in order to further grasp how this applies to every believer here today, I want to consider something that Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It's actually here in 2 Corinthians 5, beginning of verse 17, where Paul writes this. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we, Christian, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Paul here is reminding us that God is the one who transforms our lives. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. If you're a born again believer, you are a new creation in Christ Jesus. And what this means is that through the imputation of Christ's righteousness, every stain of our sin has been wiped away. No matter the sins that we've committed, they've been wiped away. The stain of sin, we're cleansed. We've been covered with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And now, much like those shepherds who came to find the baby Jesus, God has a plan to turn outcasts like us into his holy ambassadors. I am perfect proof that God takes the foolish things of this world and uses them in the way that he chooses. He takes outcasts and turns them into ambassadors so that we can go out and declare the gospel message. And if you think that there's something in your past that would keep you from being his ambassador, then you don't believe what the Bible says. We are ambassadors for Christ. And just to be clear, what this means is that we've been sent to to herald the news from heaven. In the name of Jesus Christ, so that others might be saved. And in this way, we've been called to share this good news so that other lives might be transformed as well. It's for this reason that we should keep Christ at the center of our Christmas. Because what better opportunity than to use Christmas as as the time to share this good news about the birth, life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. A Christ-centered Christmas will transform fears into joy and a Christ-centered Christmas will transform outcasts into ambassadors. Finally, a Christ-centered Christmas will transform sinners into worshipers. And in order to explain my point, let's, uh, let's continue to consider the transformed lives of the shepherds found back in Luke chapter two. If you would, let's turn back to Luke two. I want to pick up our study there by focusing your attention at verse 20. Here Luke tells us that the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. Now here in the final verse of our study today, we find these shepherds. They're returning to the stable where the baby Jesus was still there lying in the manger And I love this little detail because what this tells us here is that these men were not only motivated to go out and and invite others to come and witness the miraculous moment when our Messiah was born, uh, but they also then wanted to return as quickly as they could just to make sure that they too could rejoice in the arrival of the Messiah. And according to uh, to Luke here, this is exactly what they did. They encouraged everyone in town to come and see the baby Jesus and then they went right back and began glorifying and praising him. That word glorifying is translated from a Greek word, which in this context, it speaks of a celebration which is designed to honor and magnify the one that's being glorified. And according to the, the transformed lives of these shepherds, you know, the, they no longer wanted to go hang out with their sheep. They no longer wanted to go party in town. They, they wanted to glorify the one who was born Christ the Lord. This was their brand new passion. And these men weren't just honoring the baby Jesus with this spirit of celebration, but Luke tells us here that they were praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen and as it was told them. That word praising, was used in reference to those who honor God by singing his praises. And what this means here is that these burly men were so motivated and moved by the miraculous birth of our Messiah that they began to express their joy by singing uh, praise songs to God. Think about that for a moment. I mean, these these were tough, burly dudes who, you know, fought jackals and hyenas and lions. And here they were standing before a baby singing praise songs. And and I point that out because I I get it. There's times, you know, where, you know, guys show up to church. I'm not going to sing. I'm not going to look like a sissy. I'm not going to sing these praise songs because, you know, I'm a man. Hmm. I don't know, I, I see these burly dudes motivated to sing the praises of Jesus Christ because no one else is worthy of praise. And once you realize this, your life is transformed. You know, I, I remember growing up You know, in church as a young child, my mom would drag us off to church, you know, and she's just like, I'm not singing these silly songs. And then I got older and then I started becoming the lead singer of different you know, punk bands. And man, if you go back and look at some of the stuff I sang about back in the 80s and 90s, it's horrible, demonic, just garbage songs that glorify Satan. Didn't mind singing those songs. Well, I just don't like Christian music. You ever thought, why? Why don't you like Christian music? Is it because of the content of the lyrics? If so, there's an issue. The Lord took me, you know, from you know, the mosh pit and from, from the stage where I was singing horrible music and put a new passion in my life, transforming me, a foul mouthed sinner, into someone who wanted to sing the praises of the Lord. And He can do that for every single person here today. Jesus is able to turn foul-mouthed sinners into people of praise. And with this as the focus, I want to consider something that Paul wrote in Romans chapter 15. So turn in in your Bibles to Romans 15. And as you turn there, I want to uh, share another story about my, my first Christmas as a Christian. You see, up until that point in time, I hated Christmas music. Hated it. Every year I would cringe the very minute the store started playing it. And every year it seemed like they played it earlier and earlier, you know, by the time, you know, within the next couple of years, it'll be like July 4th celebration. And then Christmas music comes out, you know, and, and when I came to Christ, I was actually uh, the store artist at Tower Records here in Austin. And, uh, and and so part of, you know, what they were doing every, every year was to play Christmas music to, to sell Christmas music right before Christmas. And I remember Starting to hear those Christmas songs after having just become a Christian and realizing there is deep theological truths found within these Christian Christmas songs. Do you know what Rudolph the Red Nose Reindeer is really about? I'm, I'm joking. <laughs> But there are Christian Christmas classics that are filled with deep theological truths, much deeper than a lot of the Christian music is even today. And I started hearing this stuff for the very first time with believing ears thinking, the gospel had been in those Christmas songs the whole time, and I never heard it, never heard it. And I would walk around t- Tower Records, you know, and making all kinds of godless signs and, and graphics, you know, for the store. And, but I was just filled with joy singing those songs as we got closer to Christmas. And it's my 26th Christmas now uh, since my conversion, and, and I still love singing the Christmas songs. Songs about the God who sent his only begotten son to the earth so that sinners like me, could be saved by his grace. And yeah, I was once a foul mouthed sinner, much like those shepherds there in the first century. And yet, by the grace of God, which was revealed in that makeshift crib, by faith in our Lord in Christ Jesus, he's transformed me into a person who now rejoices to sing the praises of God. And this is in line with his perfect will. This is exactly what Paul is writing about here in Romans chapter 15. Look with me there beginning at verse 8 because here Paul declares, Now I say that Jesus Christ has become a servant to the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made to the fathers and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy as it is written. For this reason I will confess to you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again he says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, loud him, all you peoples. And again, Isaiah says, there shall be a root of Jesse and he who shall rise to reign over the Gentiles in him, the Gentiles shall hope. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Here in these verses, we find Paul helping the Gentile Christians there in Rome to understand that the Lord's grace can turn any sinner, Jew or Gentile, he can turn and transform any sinner into a person of praise. And according to Paul, yeah, this includes us. You might not know this, but in the mind of the first century Jew, the only worse thing than a foul mouthed shepherd was a foul mouthed Gentile. And yet Paul tells us that the grace of God is able to transform any sinner into people of praise who are truly worshiping God. And that's true of us today. As we consider the transformation of those first century shepherds, I just want to conclude our study today by reminding you that the Lord desires to save every single sinner. That's his plan. He sent Jesus, the Father sent his only begotten Son, to be sin for us. Though he knew no sin. Our sinless Savior knew no sin and yet took our sins upon himself there on the cross so that those who trust in him can be set free from the judgment we deserve. And that's not only true of you, Christian. That's true of your drunk uncle that you're hoping to avoid this next couple of weeks. That's true of your criminal cousin who just got out of jail again. That's true of your complaining sibling, your, your angry grandparent. That's true of, of every single sinner. And who knows, but that this might be the year that they actually repent of their sins and trust in Jesus Christ. And it's for this reason that we need a Christ-centered Christmas. As we continue to prepare for Christmas morning, I encourage you to remember that a Christ-centered Christmas can transform our fears into joy. A Christ-centered Christmas can transform outcasts into ambassadors. A Christ-centered Christmas can transform sinners into worshipers. And it's for this reason that I encourage you to realize that the most wonderful Christmas is a Christ-centered Christmas because a Christ-centered Christmas is able to transform the lives of those will simply embrace the free gift of grace which is received by faith in Jesus Christ. rather than trying to avoid that drunk uncle or that criminal cousin or that complaining sibling or whoever it may be. Let, let's stop trying to avoid these sinners and instead let's step out with the faith of the shepherds who then followed in the footsteps of the angel who showed up to announce the birth of Jesus Christ and, and let's go to the people in Bethlehem, so to speak, and let's announce to anyone who will listen the birth of our Savior and what that means. Let's look for every opportunity to lead our loved ones to the Lord. And and one of the best ways to do this is by celebrating the birth of the baby Jesus as we prepare for Christmas. And let's lead our loved ones to the Lord so that they might live, you know, that they might turn their lives over to the Lord and so that their lives might be transformed by the grace of God. And in this way, we can help them to experience the wonderful transformation of a Christ-centered Christmas. Let's pray.